I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I've seen Transformers, Age of Extinction, the fourth one with Mark Wahlberg. What a terrible, terrible movie. I've seen Shane Black's The Predator, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I've seen the short film I made in college, 804. That was the title. It's actually not bad, but it still kind of sucks. All these movies will be lost in time, like farts in a tornado. <laughs> Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny, pronouns he, him. I'm the film expert. I'm Laura, she, her. I'm the literature expert. Yes, you are. And I haven't been drinking tonight. That's a lie. <laughs> That's a lie. She's had <laughs> a couple margs, but um, hey, it's a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> We're recording this. Why not? You deserve it. it. I earned it. And it's, been it's been a tough week. Yeah, but it, we're finishing off the week with a fantastic movie and discussion uh, oh. from from a pretty, I'll say, solid book. I have so much to say yeah, the, about the story. These are two, and what's what's great is that you know there's a lot of discussions just about the story itself, but but the movie, the making of the movie, and all the different cuts it went through, and the studio interference. There's a whole other story about that too that. Honestly, is this going to become a two-part episode? Because maybe I don't know if I'm going to be able to rein it maybe, in. Maybe, but let's try to. I mean, yeah, but well, <laughs> this might be a long episode, folks. Well, how about we just cut to the chase <laughs> today? You could. Pro I don't know if you recognize the music at all. The movie is very recognizable, but not the book so much. Mm -hmm. Today we are covering Blade, Blade Runner. Runner and the book that it's based on called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? by the master Philip K. Dick. May the he rest master. in peace. I read the book this time too. So yes. Yeah. Hey, how about that? And it was quite a shock, right? Well, it, I it mean... pretty different. Oh, then the book... Yeah, I'm saying... What I say is that it's pretty different in story, but also it's similar in some ways. Similar in I, themes, yeah. In themes, sure. but then, you know, certain characters and how things play out. But then, yeah, I, I know it's similar... But very different, but similar. Um, but well, let's jump right in with Journeys. Do you want to share yours first? Yes. I thought you'd never ask. Go for it. So Blade Runner is obviously a classic, but there was this kind of inside joke with my brother Matt that we had about the movie because we watched this show, which was on current TV, which is no longer a thing, and current TV was actually, it's not really TV, it was all online, all streaming, but... RottenTomatoes.com, mm -hmm. they used to have a show, like an online mm. show, where hosted by these two people, and one of the hosts was this guy, Brett Ehrlich, hilarious comedian, um, and just personality, but he had this bit in the show, and you can't find the show, it's crazy, it was on for like four seasons, but like no one, <laughs> Matt and I were like the only people who watched it, but yeah, it just it went off the air, and you can't even find clips of this online, but he had this bit where... He, he would talk straight to the camera about, he would do hot takes, and he had this one video where he was talking about how he, he would lie to his friends about Blade Runner because everyone says, oh, it's such a classic, sci-fi classic, such a classic, but then he would like turn to the camera and be like, 
like, listen, I'm tired of, like, lying about Blade Runner. Like, if you mention anything bad about Blade Runner around, like, hardcore science fans, they'll literally crucify you. It's like, so he's just like, I'm just going to go back to the conversation and be like, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a classic. And then uh, one of his friends is just like, hey, we should watch Blade Runner tonight. He goes, oh, Blade Runner, such a classic, love it. <laughs> and it kind of has that reputation, right? A lot of people love it, but a lot of people kind of find it slow or, mm. or dense or, or different from what they're expecting, which is, you know, what I've grown to understand is kind of what's special about it, mm. is that it really does take its time and it's very atmospheric and moody, but it mm. deals with these very complex themes and For it's sure. fun. But yeah, that was just kind of whenever we'd, we'd you know, I'd talk about like, what movie are you going to watch tonight? It's like, oh, Blade Runner. Oh, such a classic. <laughs> and yeah, it's like, that's the thing. And, and that inside joke has extended to other hot takes that we have of like classic movies. I'm not a contrarian. I, I normally go with the flow of like what you know cr the critics are saying. I, I normally agree with the masses, I should say. But there are certain movies, like everyone has, that you secretly don't like or don't appreciate as much. And Blade Runner was one of those movies until I started really getting into sci-fi in college, and that kind of turned around for me. And also, another hot take, this has nothing to do with Blade Runner, but The Godfather Part Two. Now, I should say, still an amazing movie, but people always compare... You know, part two to part one of The Godfather, and like, oh, which is better? But like, they're, you know, two of the greatest films ever made. My opinion is that I think part one is far superior than two. And you say that around cinephiles, and they'll lose their minds, right? Uh -oh. So I normally don't say that. Um, I, I normally just lie and be like, oh, yeah, Godfather Part 2, such a classic. Such a great, but, uh, but the truth is, I think it's a great movie, but I don't think it holds a candle to the first one. So it, it, that kind of, you know, that way of hiding your hot takes blossomed out of Blade Runner. Now, mm -hmm. I, I didn't like it when I was younger, but I, I really, when I was honing in my tone, like my filmmaking style in college, what I, the stories I really wanted to tell, I really gravitated towards... Blade Runner, and I mentioned, you know, in the intro, the short film I made in college, 804, well, every single frame of that movie was based off of storyboards and frames from Blade Runner. Like the whole tone, the whole, cool. like, the blue mm -hmm. look of it, the very, like, futuristic noir, mm -hmm. it's all from Blade Runner, and I owe a lot of my style and certainly the stories I like to write. I, I find myself coming back to this film all the time, so I can't believe I haven't read the book up until now. Mm -hmm. Read the book, really enjoyed it. It's, it's you know, a quick, fairly quick read at about, you know, yeah. well, I listened to it about nine hours, so it, it flies by, it, and I was pretty compelled by it, and um, yeah, I look forward to discussing the changes between the book and the movie but how about you what's your journey with let's do you do the book first and okay. then the movie i have a very long journey with this story so hitting the ground running early in my childhood i remember this being on television a lot in my household i think my, this is one of my dad's favorite films and so anytime we would come across it on tv he would stop and watch it and then as soon as VHS came out, DVDs, I don't know if we had it on VHS, but we certainly have it on DVD. And I had never seen the full movie until college when I took the class that inspired this podcast called Film and Lit. Right, not Film is Lit, not <laughs> yeah, this Yeah, I really had to think about that for a second. Right. So 
I had also not read the book and I wasn't excited to jump into this because as I've mentioned before, sci-fi isn't my jam necessarily, mm-hmm. but Philip K. Dick's writing, who he's the man who wrote, he's the author, is a very different kind of sci-fi, which really sticks out. And it wasn't very popular in the 50s and 60s when he was publishing stories because it's futuristic and it's sci-fi, but it's also very realistic, mm-hmm. which is was not the norm then during, you know, during the space age. Right. So that's actually, I think, what really draws me in. I mean, this whole story wrestles with the question, what is human? So these are very deep questions yes. that we're going to wrestle with. And so when I was in college, I read the book, really enjoyed it. I was confused about some elements, I'll admit, but after listening to the lecture that my professor presented and then I finally watched the movie and was so emotionally overwhelmed, which is not what I was expecting. I mean, this whole story is about androids and questioning whether their functionality raises their consciousness to Mm -hmm. the level of humans. And of course the book, like I mentioned, I really connected with the book and it really did make me question like, what does it mean to be human? You know, and what do humans have the right to judge other creatures by and these sort of things. But the movie in particular was so emotionally overwhelming that it really blew me away. Mm -hmm. And it still blows me away every time I see it, especially, I mean, the end, I mean, (laughs) we'll get there, but I cry almost every time I watch the end because it's so overwhelming. So flash forward to October 2017. I know where this story's (laughs) going. And I am flipping right through Tinder. And this profile pops up with a cute picture of a guy on a rooftop. Who is he? It's I'll kill him. Danny. Oh, what? (laughs) And... Danny's Tinder profile mentioned that he wanted to see Blade Runner 2049. Directed by Denis Villeneuve. Continue. Of course. It didn't say that in your Tinder bio, but it should have. Yeah. And so because I had such a strong connection with the Blade Runner story, I swiped right and we started a little conversation and that's how Danny and I ended up on our first date going to see Blade Runner 2049 at the Arclight Santa Monica. And so we obviously have a very deep connection to the story because that was how we met and that was our first date. I mean, I guess a deep (laughs) connection. You know, I made fun of Tinder all throughout college saying, I don't need that stuff, please. We all say that. Yeah, but the minute I hop onto Tinder, bam, first person I meet. uh, Yeah, love my life. Yes, you're right. The first date I ever, first Tinder date I ever went on I talked to plenty of guys, but Danny was the first person that I wanted to meet. And we went on a date, and the rest is history. Yeah. That's my journey. And what's kind of crazy is that even Blade Runner 2049 still has connections to the book. You can see some themes transfer over, and it's one of those rare sequels that 
is, I, I wouldn't say as good as the original, but it's still exceptional, and it also still has ties to the original source material, so that's really cool. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I think technically would have really struggled because of when the original movie was made. Mm. And so I think that they were able to go back to the source material and pull out a lot of stuff that maybe wouldn't have translated as well in the 80s as it does with our digital abilities nowadays, which I just really appreciated. For example, just a really quick example, the lighting, which of course is done by... Roger Deakins, bam, <laughs> yes. I mentioned his name again. Right, that orange lighting and blue and, and other blue, yeah of course but specifically the sort of radioactive fallout oh fog right yeah that they're able to able to capture in 2049 that i just don't think they could have harnessed as well in the original movie of blade runner so yeah again i'm gonna I'm just going to start gushing about this movie if you don't stop me. So do you want to start with some differences? Yeah. Well, I should say the movie came out in 1982. The book was published uh, when? 1968. 1968. Got it. So both stories, the book and the original movie, take place in a dystopian version of Earth. Mm-hmm where everyone who is smart or important or rich has moved off the trash heap that, that Earth has become to off-world, off-colonies, and Mars, uh, throughout the solar system, throughout the galaxy. They've mm-hmm. just escaped. They're gone. They don't want anything to do with it. Disseminated. Yeah, right. And our hero, our main character, is Richard Deckard, who is a Blade Runner. Such a cool name. But in, in the book, he is only referred to as... A bounty hunter that works for the police department uh whereas in the movie he's an actual like police detective but he's you know he's also you know his job in the police department mm-hmm. is is a, still the same a bounty hunter but but he's like an, an actual officer in, in the movie mm-hmm. but these six androids who in the movie they're called replicants they escape from off-world and hijack a ship and hide um, on Earth. And two are killed, so there's four left when, when the story starts. And it's Deckard's job to hunt down these four and retire them. Quote unquote, retire means kill. And yeah, that's the base premise for both stories. But of course, there's a bunch of differences. So let's get to the very first difference. Laura, what's the one that struck you the most? Ooh. I don't know if I have one that strikes me the most, but right off the bat, as soon as you start reading, it's different. We enter into a scene where Deckard has just woken up next to his wife. He's not married in the movie. He's Mm. married in the book, Iran. And they have this long conversation about how to wake up and how to jumpstart their day and what kind of emotion they want to preset on this little mechanism that sets their emotions. They have a bunch of different kind of settings from like zero to like 800 or 900. And each one has an emotion that you're able to like jolt into your body. So if you want to be happy or sad or depressed or ready for the day, like you Mm -hmm. have to preset your settings and Mm -hmm. that's how you are able to sort of wake up and then there's a really long discussion about Deckard's electric sheep 
and we start learning that you're right like this is a dystopia we learn that all animals all most real animals have died most humans have evacuated the earth because of this radioactive fallout because of what they call world war terminus and then deckard goes to work he starts his commute sort of so that's the opening of the book uh like i said it's very very different we get this feeling that it's sort of post-apocalyptic and very isolated like there aren't a lot of people there's not a lot of population density because of this fallout and like you mentioned before everybody who's left the earth is either smart or useful or rich in some way and they've decided that they're too good to populate earth kind of and everyone who's left behind is described as like a chicken head or some kind of cast off Mm -hmm. that either doesn't care about the living situation on earth or has been almost like backwardly exiled right Right. (laughs) like like they haven't been kicked off Earth. Earth has become this uninhabitable area that only the castoffs are good enough to live in. Yeah, and in the movie, it's still very dystopian, but you know, there's there's a huge populace, and right. it's like an actual city moving in, and there's a lot of trash. Whereas, yeah, you know, and the trash buildup. Where in the book, they kind of allude to it being pretty desolate, and there always being a, a huge cloud of fallout, right. the um, dust, yeah, that messes with people's minds. And also, too, in the book, it starts out in San Francisco, and it's mostly set in San Francisco, and in Blade Runner, which of course is going to play off my love for los angeles it's set in los angeles and in the movie it's sort of explained that there's overpopulation and there's been a climate crisis Mm -hmm. so those are just sort of the differences in setting which of course i'm gonna lean into for the movie because the choice of making it a film noir and making it the climate crisis that has caused this darkness and this raininess in Los Angeles, which of course we know is kind of a joke because it never rains in LA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that choice for the movie is so incredible. Although I think San Francisco is such a visually arresting city now that I would love to see a dystopian version of that. When I was reading the book, I was like, oh, it, it would have been cool to see San Francisco in this different, in this Blade Runner setting. But I did, actually didn't even think about, you know, L.A. being a more appropriate setting because of this climate crisis and population density sure. thing. Well, that, and also that whole going back to Los Angeles as being this beautiful film noir city. I know, obviously, film noirs are also set in San Francisco sometimes, but L.A. has but this yeah, no, rich history right. of being that dark, dank, detective story setting. So mm-hmm. that to me is just so, such a brilliant choice. And that's what makes both the book, but especially the movie, because it's in a visual form, of course, so arresting because it, it has a noir visual imagery to it, like an old detective story of the 40s. Sorry, listeners, that's just Laura pouring her spindrift. We're going through a big spindrift phase right now. Um, yeah, it... it has this kind of you know the lighting of a noir you know and made in the golden age of hollywood but it takes place in the future in a dystopian future so it's these two um 
what's the word anachronistic in the way that it's a like a detective noir mm-hmm. story but and taking place in the cyberpunk future right well t- november 2019 to right act which is really fun of course because that was just last year right uh but i I really wanted to just interject this really funny line that makes me laugh every time i hear it it's when deckard in the movie shows up to the tyrell corporation and he's just about to whip out the void comp test on rachel and he goes it's too bright in here (laughs) they lower the shades in the room which is such a funny way of pulling your attention to the very intentional dark lighting mm-hmm. it's so funny and and that scene especially i mean we, we should right. say that the visuals in this movie are just so like stunning stunning uh, arresting like it, it it captures your attention at all t- like it, it's such a cliche to say that the visuals you know the setting is a character but i mean i i, I gotta make the the podcast taboo oh, and yeah. say that and a lot of that is attributed to art department head sid mead who passed away last year but i mean r.i.p he's what an artist and his yeah. drawings were what production designer lawrence g paul and uh and david snyder they took these drawings and and made you know constructed these matte paintings and the actual sets based off of sid mead's drawings uh you know and of course inspired by philip k dick and created just something beautiful and we watched so we watched the final cut Mm -hmm. uh which we should say is the cut that ridley scott the director you know he recommends everyone see and and you know blade runner has a tumultuous past because it was heavily re-edited before its theatrical release and then ridley scott came out with a director's cut in 1992 and then he basically took that director's cut and made some visual advancements to it, remastered both the Mm -hmm. visuals and the sound. And now the final cut came out in 2007. And so that's the definitive version. Um, And I'll I'll talk about the differences between all the cuts later. But yeah, we watched the 2007 final cut, the cut Ridley Scott wants you to see, like his ultimate vision, Mm -hmm. he says. So for a movie that was made in 1982, was refurbished in 2007, man, does it hold up. So I, there, are, there are movies that came out in 2007 that don't hold up as oh, well yeah. as, as Blade Runner. I was just watching the fourth Harry Potter and the visuals and that don't hold Goblet? up. Goblet? Yeah. Goblet of Fire? Oh, that's, yeah, one of, that's my some... favorite. But um, Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, the point is, yeah. know when to use practical effects. Exactly. And yeah, this is. <laughs> and lean into those when you have good practical effects because it can make the difference. And so much of this movie is matte paintings, you know, backgrounds that look mm-hmm. that look real, but of course are are not. They're, they're paintings, they're backgrounds, they're screens. And they still, I mean, it, it, it's pretty incredible how well this movie holds up. But. Yeah. But, you know, also, I I think for a book that was written in the 60s, it still is pretty dang modern. And what Mm -hmm. what I really liked about the book that is not in the movie really at all is what you're saying about animals are really valued and mm-hmm. people want the, and most people have electric animals you know right. like Deckard has electric sheep and he is such a deep depression within him that he can't own a real sheep yeah he, he has this longing that's so well realized by Philip K Dick of him just wanting to 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 finally come across a real animal and to buy it and the only real reason he 
is a bounty hunter in the first place is because he gets paid a thousand dollars per uh, android that he retires and that type of money it is is a lot of money for their current economy mm-hmm. and really like he he really could care less about about his job or about anything he doesn't really care about his yeah, wife he clearly doesn't care about around yeah. you're right and he just wants real he wants something connected to the real world that has you know sense left him behind so that's kind of a theme yes and see this builds his character so so well because his passion for owning a real animal stems from his longing and yearning to care for something that is natural rather than created and mechanical. Right, that's a big reason why he doesn't use the the mood organ in, right. in the beginning because exactly. he's like changing your mood mood like that is artificial. It's wrong. Right. It goes against our yeah. very nature. And that's actually it's interesting because this is a really big step away from the book that the movie takes. Because, you know, if we go back to what we were talking about in the beginning about how Earth has become very isolated and people don't really live close to each other. And even if you do live in the same apartment complex, there's such a class stratification because of, you know, who can own a real animal, who can't, that it causes a huge lack in human emotion. Mm -hmm. And of course, this whole book is asking what makes us human. And the answer that Philip K. Dick kind of supplies every chance he gets is it's like emotion and Mm -hmm. it's empathy, 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 empathy. And so Deckard really struggles with having to act like he cares for an electric animal. In the beginning, of course, we start with he starts with a sheep Mm -hmm. and he really struggles to see how going through the motions of caring for a mechanical animal does anything to build that feeling of emotion. Mm -hmm. So then the reader is automatically asked to evaluate, well, what makes me human? Or what makes me go through mechanical steps of being a human? And what do my actions mean? And what's the motivation behind my actions? And like, it's such a profound thing to start asking. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's Well, I think the book has a lot of ties to Blade Runner 2049 because Mm -hmm. it keeps on cutting back to a character, J.R. Isidore, which in the movie is changed to J.F. Sebastian for whatever reason. But he's one of the uh, chicken heads you're you're talking about. He is a lower... His IQ wasn't high enough to leave... um, His IQ wasn't scored high enough because of... Right, yeah. Right, because it's... Yeah, it's like a whole comment on social constructs. But. And, and he, like a lot of people in the society, ascribes to the religion Mercerism. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the book, Mercer, this guy, is exposed as a fraud. And he showed that like actually all of his you know, religion is fake. Like, it, look, it was built on a soundstage. And what happens is that people like J.R. specifically, and then Richard, uh, Deckard, even faced with the fact that their religion is ex- exposed as fake, it doesn't matter. They decide to believe in it anyways because it's that belief that, you know, lends to their identity, to to that lends to their meaning in life. And with Blade and Runner... Humanity. Right, yeah. humanity, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in Blade Runner 2049, for a large portion of that movie, a certain character thinks that they 
are the chosen one. And then they learn towards the end that no, their original beliefs were were right. They're 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 a replicant. And that revelation shows that like exactly what you're saying, like what does it mean to be human? It's like the fact that he believed he was human that that made him human. Right. And just the fact that, you know, it's like he for that, br- that brief period of time and just discovering that you're you're actually not human, it, it actually doesn't matter because... Right, it, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't yeah. change anything, right? Yeah. So that's where I thought both... Uh, I thought that was pretty profound. However, the mercerism, that whole plot thread in the book, they keep on cutting back to it, where I, whereas I think it got a little too esoteric towards the end. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is something that... Philip K. Dick has been criticized for because bits like the empathy box and joining into a union with other humans through mercerism because it's really hard to figure out what's reality and what's not real and like what's going on because reality is really blurred in those situations and like at one point J.R. Isidore sort of becomes Mercer like he can bring animals back to life and there's like this thing with a spider that he brings back to life and it's really unclear and what philip k dick is kind of showing is these characters don't always know what's real and what's not real Mm -hmm. and it's just it's just it's really cloudy in the book uh which i think they really sharpened in the movie by showing things like in the final cut like deckard has this dream of a unicorn and it's kind of clear that like that's a dream, and I think they kind of separate those ideas a little mm-hmm. cle- a little clearer, which is good. Right. Yeah. Because in the book, when they have these characters have those visions, you're not sure if they're like on the mood organ and like that's changing them, or if they're like having an actual like. Are they hot? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you're not really sure what's going on, and for as compelling as the you know the Mercer metaphor is of this religion that's exposed, but people still believe in it because it doesn't matter that it's fake. What matters is the belief. Mm -hmm. I think that just, there's just too much of it. Like the point, like Philip K. Dick, he makes his point. And after the story kind of ends in the book, it it keeps on going, similar to No Country for Old Men. Yeah. And it's like, there's this extra, you know, chapter, this epilogue, if you will, that's kind of, it's unnecessary because the the points have already been made. Yeah. Well, let's go back to sort of a difference in motivation for right. the androids. So in the book, it's really clear that the androids have been created by the Tyrell Corporation to be slaves. Right. And in the book, it's Rosen Corporation. And in the yes. movie, it's Tyrell. Another Thanks change. For out. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the Rosen Corporation specifically manufactures androids to be slaves on the off-Earth colonies of humans. And so the androids have kind of a single-minded goal of escaping slavery and integrating into human life or earth life because they're sick of being slaves, which is valid. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, the androids are a lot more idealistic. And Roy Batty has convinced the six androids to come to earth to sort of extend their lifespan because he's obviously started to develop the emotional maturity 
of a human and he wants to extend that richness of life Mm -hmm. rather than being treated like this disposable robot because that he was manufactured to be Mm -hmm. and that I actually think leans in to the question of what makes us human even better than the book. I think it pushes it further. Right. Because in the book, they just, like you're saying, they just want to escape because they don't like their lives as right. slaves. Which is fair. But, right. But they're but, not chasing that emotional catharsis that Roy Batty is obviously chasing in the movie or it doesn't even seem like they're aware of their condensed lifespan right and even if they were it's like they don't really care about longevity they just care about like moment to moment feeling right whereas in in the movie they make it clear that like by this point in their lives these androids have developed you know, quote unquote, human emotions, like mm-hmm. the will to live on, to right. to live a long, prosperous life. And they leave these off-world colonies in search of, you know, they go to the, the motherland, the heart of it all, or fatherland, I should say, with, right, with, Ty- with Tyrell, Tyrell right. of trying to get, you know, their literal, literal father and God you know, right. to extend life. But Tyrell kind of gives a very human answer in saying that, like, you have been coded, you know, kind of like humans have, have been coded, but, you know, you, we just have different coding, right? right. And, and your, your coding has been set, your life has been set, now you're going to die when it's natural for you to die. Right. And Oh, natural for you to die. That right. It makes me cry it, because of what happens in the end. And it's, oh. it's funny that their deaths are, after four years, are natural to them, but it's not natural to human life. But but that's kind of the thing. You know, it, it kind of goes into the argument of, you know, humans are living longer these days due to modern medicine, which is good. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, there's always these stories in sci-fi of like, you know, when's the cutoff? Like, if you can live forever, like, should you live forever? Right. There's a really famous Doctor Who episode of this woman who is like a thousand years old and she's just a piece of skin with a face. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, you see these stories pop up, you know, again and again of like, okay, you now can extend your life to 150 years with like robot parts, but the more parts you add, the more you become like a robot okay. and less like... Genesis, yeah, right. more like a robot, less like a human. And again, yeah, circling back to what does it mean to be human? And I think you're you're spot on with it. It's like it's about feeling emotion and like believing in meaning, I guess. Yeah, well, and, and see, that's why I think it's so powerful to see Roy's anger in the scene where he kills Tyrell because he's so vindicated in wanting more of the human experience. Like it's so tragic that he knows that he's probably only going to have four years to live. And he might not know exactly when that timeline is supposed to end, but he's clearly nearing it. He Mm -hmm. can tell. That's why he's commandeered a ship to come to find Tyrell and see Mm -hmm. if he can extend it. And his anger in that scene is so rightful, I think, because he was only given a fraction of what humans are normally given, and he's only been able to sort of go through adolescence, if that makes sense. And so it's not fair to have a human play the role of a god and give that life, but because of the fear of them integrating 
and becoming just as human or perhaps even more human because of their intelligence Mm -hmm. to put a lifespan on that of only four years just because the human is afraid of what the android could become. So his anger is like, it's so understandable and it's so tragic. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing. This might sound pretty schlocky to say, but Tyrell is not creating life. He's creating death. Right, yeah. he he created androids who are, with their superior intelligence, have surpassed humanity at, at every level. You know, mm-hmm. physicality, intelligence. You know, they they beauty. have They're beauty. All right, they've they've they have a such a complex mainframe that they literally develop human emotions. So from now on, what Tyrell does is he codes in death, right, yeah. to his to his babies, which is such a kind of a a sinister thing. That's why Roy is angry, because it doesn't give him the opportunity of becoming a fully developed thing that can experience the joys of life. Like, he can't get married and he can't have children. He clearly has developed emotion because we see that he kisses Pris and he has emotional relationships with the other Andes. And you don't see until the end, but like he's this Jesus figure, obviously, mm-hmm. that has the right to have those experiences. And it's sort of, it's asking like, if humans have the ability to create life, do we have the right to judge what makes a human better or worse than us? And is it right to give that a cutoff? Right. And, and no, like, I think is like the answer is like, no, that's not fair. Exactly. That's not our right. And, and that's precisely why these Andes, as they're, you know, uh, right. nicknamed in the book and replicants in the movie, that's why they're such complex, compelling villains, because sure, they are murderers, right? They're, right. you know, they're, they're clearly psychotic in some senses, but they also are, I mean, basically more or less human. Right, by that point. Right, and Deckard has the line, it's not my problem if they act normally. Right. It's my problem if they... Cause trouble. Cause trouble. Yeah. But, again, that asks the question, why are they causing trouble? Well, it's because we haven't given them rights. And they're so dehumanized in the book and in the movie. I mean, in the title cards in the movie, right off the bat, the last line of the title card is this is called retiring it is not called killing or something like that and it's constantly explicitly talked about in the book when deckard is going back and forth calling androids it or calling them by human pronouns Mm -hmm. and he just wrestles with this because it makes it easier for him to think of them as robots and to retire a robot is a lot less human than saying murder or killing a humanoid. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, there's just, like, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's so, and it's, it's honestly really relevant to language that hate groups today yeah, use. Yeah, exactly. Hate groups have always used this dehumanizing language. I am currently reading Oil for the podcast and the language against the Bolsheviks and the communists, you know, it's exactly the same. People in America were calling Soviets, savages, reds, it, 
all of these things that dehumanize and create those ideas of us and them. And that makes it so much easier to propagate violence against another group, even though if we all would just come back and say, we're all human, we all have human rights, it would be a lot harder to decide that that group, quote unquote, deserves harm or deserves death or deserves incarceration. Mm -hmm. So these ideas are like you were saying earlier, anachronistic, because as long as people continue to talk about us and them, it'll be easy to have this story apply to one group dehumanizing and propagating violence against another. Yeah, very relevant. Yeah, because you can sub in basically any minority or oppressed group, you know, from any time period in it. It's very similar to what's going on in the movie. And, and that goes to kind of the gray ethics, cloudy ethics of Deckard's job um, mm-hmm. as a Blade Runner. And let me just say, Blade Runner, one of the coolest titles oh, of yeah. all time. I mean, it, I like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep as a title. A little long, a little clunky. Yeah. Blade Runner is like, so badass just on its own just say blade runner like what is that like that's so cool well and it's so interesting it sort of makes you wonder like how did they get that name because there isn't really like a blade and like there's running but like what does that mean where did that come from what's the etymology of that right it's like i've always thought androids are replicants they're nicknamed skin jobs so like blade runners are like by killing them it's like a you know a metaphor of like removing their skin like you know yeah. moving their shit you know yeah. something like that yeah. that's what i mean i don't i don't know if that's so why but um Which is, yeah. yeah but speaking of deckard this goes to the next biggest change where in the director's cut and the final cut they have that unicorn sequence which you know deckard dreams of a unicorn and at the end gaff he which is he's this character gaff is not in the book he puts an origami unicorn at his door, you know, because he visits Rachel but decides not to kill her. Mm-hmm. And it's not explicitly stated, but he puts the the unicorn origami by his door, just like as a subtle hint, like, I know your memories. I know you're, right. you're dreaming They've of a unicorn. So, so they hint that Deckard is also a replicant. But in the book, they kind of make it explicitly clear that no... Deckard, Deckard is a human. He puts the Voight comp test on himself and shows no right. signs of being it. So they kind of, it was funny. The whole time I was reading the book, I was expecting that twist or, or confirmation. You know, confirmation yeah. that he was a replicant. But it's interesting that Philip K. Dick was like, no, he's human. And I think that it's actually a pretty compelling decision that screenwriters Hampton Fancher and David Webb Peoples. Um, one of them made this decision, I don't know who, but, you know, to put in that kind of, like, is, is Deckard replicant? I don't know. And, um, that kind of ambiguity is is also, is pretty compelling and leads to... it's so interesting. The end almost reminds me of The Graduate, when they get on the bus, when Elaine and Benjamin get on the bus, and they sort of, they're laughing, but then their faces change to, oh god, what have we just done? Mm Mm-hmm. There's the moment when Deckard picks up the unicorn and he smiles and he gets into the elevator anyway and to in my head that had always confirmed to me that he was a replicant because Mm -hmm. he knew that he would have the same lifespan as rachel 
And so he was happy that he wasn't going to have to live so many years without her. And of course, that kind of changed when 2049 came out. Obviously, and Harrison Ford was cast. But I guess there's that whole theory that there are replicants that did have longer lifespans built into them. Well, that theory is confirmed by the theatrical cut. So want me to go into this? Sure, yeah. So this movie... We've already been talking for like an hour. I I can't believe this. This, We still haven't talked about the last scene. I know. So (sighs) when Ridley Scott made the first cut of this movie, the producers were like, this is not going to work for us. This is way too boring. People are going to hate this. It's gross. It's slow. I don't get it. Uh So they forced... Force is a strong word, but I mean, they're the ones paying for the movie. So they're just like, you're going to include narration throughout the movie uh-huh. and you're going to include this happy... How terrible would that have been, narration? So the thing is, the theatrical cut has narration in it. I think I've seen clips of that. Yeah, it's I... Like, I such a terrible... So I've seen... Cli- when do voiceovers ever work? I've seen clips About of... About time, sorry. <laughs> I've heard and seen clips of the original narration and... Harrison Ford has publicly stated that he he didn't want to do the narration. He hated it. He thought it diminished the quality of the movie, which yeah, he's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly. Because he was literally explaining stuff to the audience, and you can. It's all on YouTube. Harrison Ford's narration is the most lethargic, couldn't give a shit narration you ever mm-hmm. heard because that's literally what it was. They Ridley Scott went to Harrison. Ford's house. He had a recorder and he just recorded this really dumb exposition that was just spelling stuff out for the audience because that's what the producers demanded. And he, Harrison Ford, he literally just talks like that. Like he has, he's so hating the world. Every time he comes on his narration, it's the most just slow, dumb stuff you've ever heard. And so at the very end of the theatrical cut, it shows Harrison Ford getting Rachel holding up the origami, but in the theatrical cut, they didn't have the unicorn sequence in there. Mm-hmm. So the only the only thing that the origami was there for was to show that, hey, Gaff was there. And didn't kill Rachel. And, and didn't kill yeah. Rachel, but audiences, yeah, Rachel. audiences didn't know, they just thought the origami, you know, it could have been any animal, but in the director's cut, they put back the unicorn sequence to show that, like, right. hey, you know, maybe Deckard's a replicant, but... In the theatrical cut, he gets Rachel, and then it cuts to footage that was left over from The Shining. What? Yeah. Oh, wait, no, maybe I did know yeah. this. Yeah, so the opening of The Shining, you know that yeah. uh, the helicopter footage over the Colorado right. Rockies? Quote-unquote, Yeah, it's Montana. right, exactly. So they used uh, leftover footage from that, which Stanley Kubrick allowed them to yeah. use because he shot so much footage. Right. So... In the theatrical cut, they used that footage and then showed Deckard and Rachel escaping the city, driving through this countryside. And then the narration comes over and Harrison Ford's like, Tyrell mentioned that Rachel was one of those special models. No lifespan. Yeah. Shut up. So, yeah, in the theatrical... That's so fucking dumb. Right. So, yeah, the theatrical cut, yeah, mentions that Rachel's special, but they don't say anything about maybe Deckard being a replicant. I would throw my television... Exactly. If I ever saw that, I would throw my television out. So when... Out of the window. So, yeah, Blade Runner was not a hit when it originally was released... 
because it you know audiences were still confused but they also were turned off by the the narration it had a budget of 30 million dollars a big budget movie in the 80s yeah. and it only made 41 million dollars so that that's still the studio loses still loses money off that even though they made more than than the budget remember the rule is to really be profitable you need to make about double your budget that that's the general kind of rule hmm, of that okay. so it was a huge financial loss for the studio but of course it has this cult following now but yeah that kind of yeah the theatrical <gasps> just cut about, just thinking about the theatrical cut ending it completely devalues the whole story right because the whole thing is that life is precious and you have to do you have to do as much as you can with it with what you have right and so if they're just like oh and these people lived happily ever after it's like oh what is this a fucking rom-com excuse right. me right it's it's forced and completely out of place that makes because me so angry. the whole movie you know is very <laughs> moody and you know stark and right. and not and it's not about Rachel and Deckard it's right. about the replicants, which again, I mean, I would say the main character of the book is Deckard, obviously. Mm -hmm. I would argue that in the movie, of course the main character is Deckard, but just like in Hamilton, how you realize at the end that it's all about Eliza, mm -hmm. in the end of Blade Runner, the meat comes from Roy trying to suck the marrow out of the last few minutes of his life. Mm. Yeah, and that brings us to the end. I don't know. If yeah, you no. To let, let's the get end. into it. The differences between the so, ending of the movie and book. Yeah, as you mentioned, the book "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" kind of drops off. It ends with Deckard grabbing the empathy box and becoming one with Mercer, and realizing sort of like again what you said earlier. It's not necessarily about if you're human or not. It's the experiences mm -hmm. of being human and whatever. Yeah. So that's all fine and good. And then we should mention before he becomes one with Mercer, he has he went and retired Pris and Roy with ease. And that's another difference between the mm -hmm. book and the movie. In the book, he doesn't struggle at all. Like when he comes across an android and he, you know, tests them and, and figures out that they are an android. He kills them and he without even, like, putting up a fight. Whereas mm -hmm. in the movie, he gets, like, the shit kicked out of him. He has, yeah, he has some afterthoughts. Right. About what they could represent and what it means to him to be human. But it's kind of a selfish mm -hmm. reflection. Exactly. But now. <laughs> yeah, so back to the ending of the book. I'm done. I'm done with the book. Oh, well, in the, well, before we get to the ending of the, of the movie... In the book, he finds a toad mm -hmm. when he's out. He's kind of having these visions of Mercer when he leaves the city, goes out to the this desolate right. wasteland, and he brings back the toad and thinks it's real, but then his wife shows him that it's not real. And mm -hmm. again, it ties into the message of it actually, you know, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. Deckard believed it was real. So, like, it's that... And then his wife buys crickets or flies for the toad to, quote-unquote, keep it alive because she realizes, too, that Deckard just needs to feel like yeah. something is benefiting from his care. Now, let's move on to the end of the movie. Rutger yeah. Hauer. Whoa. All right. Oscar-worthy. Oscar-worthy performance. Yeah. I mean... I, 
let's go back to the fact that I cannot watch this movie without sobbing tears into my margarita. Right, yeah. <laughs> so it adds extra salt to your margarita. Exactly. I, I salt the rim of my margarita glass with, your with tear. my tears. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so the final confrontation between Deckard and Roy Batty at Sebastian's home is filmed at the Bradbury building in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, the Ray Bradbury, which we visited. Which we visited on Danny's birthday a couple years ago incredible yeah. old building designed by Ray Bradbury who wrote Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. Incredible building. The way that they dress it down for the movie is just I mean I don't even know how they did it because they put so much water in the bit you can see on the floor yeah. and it's like how did they not ruin the infrastructure? Right. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible building. It's an office building now but you can go visit it if you're ever in Los Angeles. It's also like right down the road from Central Market. So shout out to one of Los Angeles's great ethnic cuisine mm. hubs. Uh, go visit if you're ever in town. Anyway, you see Roy going through this visceral fight to the end because he knows he's going to die. Mm-hmm. He pretty much knows as soon as he enters the building, there's going to be a confrontation. He finds Pris. He's heartbroken, obviously. And he knows that, like, this is his end. And from the time that he finds Pris's body on the ground... Which Deckard had just killed right, Pris. Very violently. In a haunting... And when she's on the floor, like, running around like a spider. It, yeah, oh, it's, it's gross. It's really hard to watch. Yeah. And the way that he leans down and, like, puts her blood over his lips. I mean, what an actor. Yeah. I mean... Ugh, just incredible. I could never be an actor. I I criticize people's acting, even though I've never been an She's actor. She's a harsh critic, folks. I'm a really harsh critic, but I also shout out to myself to knowing when there's you a great shout actor out, You in shout the out yourself? <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> shout out to me for being so good at figuring out great actors. Sorry I'm good at it. <laughs> anyway... The way that he, like, puts Pris's blood over his lips and, like, leans back against the wall is just, like, more than I can handle. Hashtag better story than Twilight. Or better love story than Twilight. Yeah, a lot. Most stories are, yeah. but continue. Anyway, so he knows, and he's going through these very human emotions of anger and loss and desperation and fight or flight. You know, like, he's he knows that he's it's either going to be him or Deckard, and even if Roy kills Deckard, he's, like, fairly certain that he's going to die. Mm. And to watch all of those emotions play out in the whole scene where he's chasing Deckard to the top of the building yep. is so incredibly sad. Right. It's, like, you just see this... He kind of turns into an animal, right? Like, he's howling, and, like, all he has left is this will to live. Like, he has no relationships anymore with the androids and he knows that he's been tracked down Mm -hmm. and so even if Deckard doesn't successfully kill him someone else is going to be on his tail Mm -hmm. so just he wants to inflict as much damage to Deckard as he can but then like there's that scene where he Oh, which I cannot watch when he pushes the nail through his hand. Yeah, and I should say in the final cut they added more gore and more footage oh, of that. I I can't. Yeah, I can't it's watch gross. That. It's so awful. But 
It's because he know like he can feel. I think in in my head, this is what I take from it. He understands that his life force is sort of draining out of him, and so he needs to sort of shock his body back into that mm-hmm. human right. pain, like that feeling. Because we also know that androids can't really feel cold because they go visit the scientist and they don't have to wear like jackets and all that stuff. So like. We know that they don't really physically experience human sensation. That's it. So then when he finally gets Rick up to the edge of the building and Rick's dangling off the edge and he saves him, like, that is so incredible. Oh, my God. Because, like, the whole statement with that is that he needs someone to remember him for him to continue living. Right. And he goes <sighs> through, you know, he goes through the 12 steps of uh, yeah. grief throughout right. that whole, he's basically just taunting and messing with Deckard until he finally gets Deckard literally dangling off an edge of a building about to die. And it's at that point he realizes, no, if I do, by saving Deckard, you know, he'll tell my story, at least in some capacity, and he'll, and he'll realize, he'll see the humanity in right. androids, and maybe he'll never kill again, which right. is heavily implied that, you know, Deckard says, I'm done, you know, once yeah. Gaff finds him. And he runs him. away with Rachel. Right. So, yeah, he proves it. Exactly. He's good on yeah, story. I think, yeah, it's like up until that point, Roy is just has this murderous rage in him because he realizes not only is he dying but all his friends have died uh you know he has this human grief to him and then when he finally sees an actual life that will live on he decides to preserve it in order to preserve himself in in a sense but to preserve future replicants Yeah, Just, and that, I can't, I can't, and the the lines at the end, I mean... Well, David Webb Peoples had written this long monologue for Rutger Hauer to say uh, when, when he was about to die, time to die, but uh, it was Rutger Hauer who added the line, all these moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. And that, I just, mean... I mean, poetic. Yeah. How do you, how do you just come up with shit like that i know rucker howard I mean, what a fantastic actor but an even better writer it seems like and I, I like i i i'm like i'm a technical writer right and it takes me days to come up with cover letters and this person just off the cuff <laughs> writes a poem in three words yeah and <laughs> what Kudos to Fancher and Peoples who were proud enough to admit that the best line, one of the best lines, not only in the movie, but in history. In cinematic history. In cinematic history yeah. uh, was written by one of the actors, not them. So, yeah, that's... Uh, and then, okay, so so we get to his death, and I think the other really tragic thing, and the thing that makes Roy Batty stick out, is, of course, he's the only repli- replicant that we see naturally die. Right. A death. Deckard could have easily, you know, like pushed him off the building or whatever, but he witnesses this minute and a half or two minute sequence of Rutger Hauer slash Roy reflecting on his very short life as he dies. And it's just so tragic, you know, like you watch this very healthy looking beautiful, intelligent, ethereal creature die. And he's like, it's just, it's so emotionally overwhelming 
that I can't handle it. <laughs> right. And in kind of the irony of the whole situation is even at four years old, Roy has lived more life than Deckard has in yeah. his, what, 38 years right, of living? Right, yeah, like mid-30s. Right, and, you know, because based on his situation, being a soldier and a slave off-world, the things he's had to do, the places he's been, both beautiful places, but harsh environments like Mars with these windstorms that they have right. there, and Orion, like attack ships on fire off the coast of Iraq. Like, there's just, you know, a huge kind of poetic irony there of him being so young. Let, But right, yet... But he has this wise perspective that even Deckard hasn't reached. Right, as yeah. a human, right? Or, right. well, Deckard is probably a replicant, but... Right, but he thinks he's a human. So right, yeah, and, totally. and, that, and that's exactly the point, is right. that he does think he's human, and it doesn't matter if you are an Andy or a, or a human. It's just... It's like what you believe and and what the meaning you find in the uh, in the things you do in the relationships that right. you have. Right, and having Deckard experience Roy peacefully dying this natural death makes him confront his mortality. And it's kind of funny because if you think about a lot of Harrison Ford's roles before this and sort of after, he's this person that doesn't really contemplate morality <laughs> mm -hmm. you know han solo indiana jones the fugitive he doesn't really consider that a possibility like death isn't really a part of him mm -hmm. and so by confronting him with the fact that even if you die a natural death it's going to come mm -hmm. and so you really do have to suck the marrow out of the bone in order to have a full life. Right. So it's just, uh, what more can I say? I, I don't know if I can say more without crying because I mean, what is that? Every right. human and has to do that. Yeah. The movie is definitely <laughs> way more profound. And in the book, by the time Deckard retires all the Andes, he hasn't come to that revelation yet. Of course he's, he's developed feelings for Rachel, but he he still doesn't view other androids with any sense of sympathy. And it isn't until he gets overwhelmed by this experience after the fact that he, you know, he takes this very existential trip out into the fallout areas of, what is it, Oregon or, or Washington? Yeah, I think, yeah, um, Oregon. And he has this, you know, very esoteric vision of Mercer, becomes Mercer and... And the book just keeps on going on. I'm like, oh, it kind of should have ended by now. But the yeah. when he does take the the frog back, at this point when you're reading it, it does seem like he's found a real animal. And it makes sense because he's uh, traveled so far from San Francisco. It's like, oh, maybe animal, you know, he would find it, you know, a stray animal here. But the heartbreak and having him figure out that, mm -hmm. no, even this animal, Little toad found far away from home. Even that's fake. I thought was pretty, pretty depressing and like yeah. really drove home the point. But like you had said earlier, there's that just extra hour of him wandering around being Mercer, and it's kind of weird. And yeah, so the book kind of drops off, whereas this the movie has just such a such a profound ending. At least the final cut. Yeah. With with Roy giving that monologue. I mean, you just you can't beat it. Yeah, and in the book too, like, I just don't think the 
theme of what makes us human is confronted well when he has sex with Rachel. In the book, it's like this experiment about how, oh, can I still kill an android if I've had sex with it? Mm-hmm. And that's right. like really... Yeah, it's a little... Yeah. And you know, this whole time too, like he's cheating on Iran, his wife, with Rachel, but he doesn't even consider it cheating because it's like just a robot. Right. And, and that's... it's just really, it's like he uses her to just sort of run this experiment on him about like, oh, am I human if I start feeling emotions for androids? Like, it's just, I think that's... Uh, right. It was a smart yeah. decision to make him a bachelor in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the fact that he escapes and again, it embodies the fact that he's learned the lesson that Roy was sort of unwittingly giving to him is even if Rachel has four years to live or two years to live, or even if you have two years to live, if you have, if you have feelings for her, don't get caught up in the complication that she might not be quote unquote human, mm-hmm. just enjoy what you have with her. And then what more can you do? Exactly. Oh my God. Do androids dream this? of electric sheep though? <laughs> yeah. Um, shout Hopefully out. we've answered that question. Right. Exactly. Shout out to cinematographer Jordan Cronenweth. I don't know if you recognize that last name Cronenweth. No. I've mentioned Jeff Cronenweth in the past. He shot both Fight Club and Gone Girl. Yeah, so really? so Jordan Cronenweth, who shot Blade Runner, father of Jeff Cronenweth. How interesting. Pretty cool, huh? Honestly, I only know one cinematographer, and it's your boy, Roger, Roger Deakins, who shot 2049. Yeah. Uh, are we into fun facts? Oh, I have a couple fun facts. Can oh, go ahead. Share? Quick fire. Did you know, you may have done this with your research, but did you know that a company called Hanson Robotics built... A Philip K. Dick robot. No, I didn't. You didn't know that? No. It's very strange. There are a lot of videos on YouTube. So in 2005, this company thought it would be really funny and interesting if they built literally a Philip K. Dick android. And again, it's kind of creepy because he just sort of sits, it's totally humanoid, mm. except for the back of his head is, is sort of removed. Did so they not get, the... he was trying to tell him, don't do this. <laughs> Guy's yeah. rolling in his grave being like, oh God. Yeah. But the creepiest thing about this robot is that it was on display at a technology conference. And it was pretty interactive. Like, it's kind of funny because it's early 2000s and they tell, he's just sort of sitting in this room on a sofa and participants come in and the scientists are like, okay, ask him a question. And they ask him questions and he like doesn't really quite respond. (laughs) It's like, what's your favorite color? And he's like, I'm Philip K. Dick. (laughs) So it's like, it wasn't great. But anyway, on the flight back from the conference, back to San Francisco, the robot went missing. And they've never recovered it. But they built like a second version. So there's another version of Philip K. Dick. Two versions, (laughs) Uh uh-oh. And then it's gonna be like, which one's the real one when the first one comes out of the bushes? It's kind of interesting. Just look it up on YouTube. It's kind of like a fun fact. My second fun fact, I was lucky enough to grow up in a part of California where lots of celebrities live. And I got to see Harrison Ford 
on a baseball field and my brother was playing Little League. Um, His son was trying out for the baseball team that my dad was coaching for. And my dad texted my mom and I and he was like, come down to the field. Harrison Ford is pitching to his son. I was like, I was like ran over and I got to see. So he's on my like celebrity have seen list around Los Angeles, which is, I think it's kind of a fun fact. He had his earring in and he had a little pitcher's glove. It was very, very cute. And I love Harrison Ford. So I thought I'd share that fun fact. Brag much? (laughs) I met Meryl Streep. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Laugh it up, fuzzball. (laughs) Anyways. I guess that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Four stars in the movie. Oh, obviously, yeah. the book is really solid, but we could have cut out a lot of the Mercer stuff and the ending goes on a little bit. But otherwise, really solid. It's a solid three out of four. Definitely read it if you're a fan of sci-fi. And it's also a cool experiment, you know, to see how the changes that really Scott and screenwriters uh Fancher and Peoples made and <laughs> Rutger Hauer too with that oh, line too. I mean. Um yeah, so, yeah, three out of four stars for the book. I mean, it's an easy read. For yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm sitting exactly where you are. Four stars out of four for the movie. Oh, such a classic. Such, such a, a classic. <laughs> uh, three out of four for the movie, and three and a half out of four for 2049, just because it's a little long. Yeah. But we've an t- incredible movie. Great follow-up. It's one of those things where I didn't ask for it, but it brought Danny into my life, Aww. and... <laughs> And it's pretty good. It's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's like nails on a chalkboard when people say the original Blade Runner is slow because it's like, I, I don't feel that at all. Oh, no. But but I completely understand. Blade Runner 2049, yeah, it, it is cool. too long. Yeah. It's 163 minutes. As you know, I cut it down on my own to 135 minutes. It still is a little long at that, but I couldn't cut any more just for, you know, the scene, the material that I had. That movie is too long, but yeah, it's still great too. Three and a half yeah. out of four, I agree with that sure. movie. Um, yeah. All right, well. We'll let you go. <laughs> you go, I know you got things to do, gotta go to work, but we'll be back next week with Mansfield Park. Hell yes! So excited. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, uh, I, know. I haven't seen the movie, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah. It's not my favorite Jane Austen novel, so you'll hear my critique next week. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>